The Death of Klinghoffer, which is what we're going to talk about this evening, by John Adams and with a libretto by Alice Goodman, was first produced in Brussels and New York in 1991. The opera is, of course, based upon a real history. The hijacking of the Italian cruise ship, the Achille Lauro, in 1985 by members of the Palestine Liberation Front. And the murder, subsequently, of a handicapped Jewish-American passenger on that ship, Leon Klinghoffer. Threading through the work itself is a sequence of choruses that reflect upon these events from a number of different perspectives. Indeed, the opera begins with two choruses, one for exiled Palestinians and the other for exiled Jews. In time, we shall meet the captain of the Akilaro and his first officer, and we shall also meet the hijackers, Molki, Mahmoud, Omar, and one who has the nickname Rambo. Then there are the passengers, a grandmother who's brought her grandson on the cruise to see the pyramids, an Austrian woman who manages to hide from the hijackers in her cabin, and an English dancer, and the Klinghoffers themselves, Leon and his wife, Marilyn. Our guests tonight are Duncan Rock, who covers the role of the hijacker Mahmoud in, tonight's, in the, this before production, and Ian Ryan from English National Opera's music staff, and they're going to perform music from the opera and talk a little bit about their roles and the music. And we also have, and we're enormously grateful to her for this, the librettist for The Death of Klinghoffer. Would you please welcome Alice Goodman. Alice, um, how did, did, did this opera grow out of Nixon in China, which was the first one that you had written a libretto for John Adams? John and Peter and I were clear that we wanted to write more operas after Nixon. That's Peter Sellers. That's Peter Sellers, uh, who was, the, I would say, the, um, the Diaghilev in all this. <laughs> he, was, um, he was everywhere... He was full of ideas. He's still everywhere and full of ideas. He was exciting and deeply irritating. And I should say, he's a very old friend of mine. And uh, he would undoubtedly say at least the last about me. Um, we wanted to do another opera. And it was clear, one of the things that was very clear to us that was that we wanted it to be an opera that was not an operatic version of a book or a play, but took its, um, its characters and its event from life. And that we were writing something, as it were, firsthand, and not, not translating, say, a novel. And it, so it was a question of waiting and watching for the right thing to come up. We were in New York in the autumn of, um, gosh, it, it must have been the, the autumn of, 2000, of 1986, and doing a works in pro process at the Guggenheim. And we were, uh, you know, everything was being played out at the piano, and we were also going to various parties where we tried to persuade the patrons of the Brooklyn Academy of Music that Nixon was a project worth investing in. And we were auditioning sopranos. That, those were the three things. And while at the Guggenheim, during one of our rehearsals, one of the musicians said to Peter, well, what's the next opera going to be? And he said, and he hadn't spoken either to John or to me about it, he just said straight off, Klinghoffer. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds in a fact, little like Peter Sellers. In fact, what he said was even worse, really. He said, Klinghoffer's toad. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when you came to look at the story, what caught your imagination? What was it about the story of Klinghoff, about the, the journey of the Aquilaro that, that, that snagged your imagination? What snagged my imagination uh, with first 
with Klinghoffer, as, as with Nixon, was that all the events of the opera took place over a very short period of time. So one had something like an Aristotelian framework to work with. This was a time in the life of opera where operas were attempting to do things like whole biographies of people. And that is something I'm convinced that simply does not work on the operatic stage. You need something that takes place over the course of a, just a few days at most. And also, this took place on a ship. On a ship and over the course of a few days. And that made it, it seemed to me, something that I could um, turn into an opera before any other questions of, of character or theme came up. And, and did you, from the very beginning, have a clear idea of what you thought the dramatic shape of this piece should be? Because it, it doesn't conform to the classic 19th century three or five act opera form with a beginning, um, a middle with a puzzle, uh, an end with a solution or a death, does it? No, no. Uh, all the things people say about the structure of Klinghoffer and shaking their heads over it are, I would, I would say, quite right. The structure is a problem. And the structure was one that we sawed at and chipped at for ages. Structurally, it's not as, um, as shapely, as att attractive, let's say, as good as Nixon. It's... Um, I'm saying that because, actually, I, I love it more, and I think it's better. But structurally, there are lots, there's a lot in it that makes me unhappy. Um, Peter had two ideas that he brought to the table when we sat down to hammer out the structure. And one of them was that the whole thing would be very static and hier hieratic. Uh, his idea was that it would resemble something like, and this wasn't his illustration, but it's the one I can give that some of you will be able to picture, the tympanum above the great west doors at Lincoln Cathedral, with all those people in different vertical rows. Um, and presumably Klinghoffer in the middle as the Christ. But, um, so I had an idea of... of of verticality and the whole shape of the stage, the whole proscenium being filled as I was working. Um, mind you though, the other ideas Peter had were ones that would have made the thing four times as long <laughs> um, because he wanted to have both the event of the hijacking and all the press and political reaction so what you're looking at is less than the first half of the originally conceived opera. When I sat down to write it, um, and, and contra to some, something that's been taken from an interview I gave, it, I didn't write it in two or three days while my baby daughter wasn't sleeping. It took two or three years during which my baby <coughs> daughter wasn't sleeping. <laughs> Um, or at least 18 months, which is about the time it takes to write a libretto. It became clear as I sketched it out and started writing that the ordinary sort of action was going to be all wrong. And when you say all wrong, you're going with both a technical sense of what works and what doesn't work on stage and a kind of... Um, of gut feeling that you get, no, this isn't good, no, I've got to screw this one up in a ball and throw it into the wastebasket. Um, all I can say is that the action version of Klinghoffer appeared cartoonish to me. And it wasn't, it was impossible to do it in a way that's, that did justice to all the stuff that was going on underneath both in terms of character and in terms of, um, I suppose, what one might call theme. You, interestingly, 
choose the celebrated tympanum at Lincoln Cathedral. Other people have wondered whether the idea of one of the Bach passions or the, that tradition of passions within the German Lutheran Church played a role in this too. I know that, that uh, John, John is much more familiar with and much um, more attached and it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing to say that I'm not attached to the Bach passions because they're great, great works of art, great works of religious art. But they were not part of my artistic formation. Um, partly because, of course, um, my upbringing was Jewish and, and I, I was not received into the church till I was over 30. And even now, when I look at, at the Bach Passions, quite a lot of the time I go, um, to compare, you know, the, the, the sublime with the ridiculous, it, it's like um, when I first read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a child, and my older sister said to me, you, you realize, don't you, Alice, those black dwarves who killed Aslan they're supposed to be us. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if it's the tympanum not for you, the, yes. the, the, the Bach Passions, the other thing that, 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 that occurred to me is that we don't, when, we, when the opera begins, we meet the captain of the ship, and you think when you've not seen this opera before, ah, oh, I know where I am now, this is going to be my guide, this is going to be the hero, this is, and wonderfully, by the time the opera gets to the second part, you've ditched that idea and you've done something that only, in my experience, Alfred Hitchcock ever dares to do, which is you've allowed me to identify one character that I care about and you then said, you've got it wrong, I'm going to change. I think that the, um, the Conradian members of the audience, those who have, have been reading their Joseph Conrad as they grew up, um, may have spotted the captain as an unreliable narrator and, in fact, as a bit of a windbag <laughs> before you. Again, had I this opera to write again, he would have been less of a windbag. Um, I, I suppose I assumed that because John had made me cut so much out of Nixon, he would be sending me messages saying, can you knock out 40 lines from that aria of the captains? And I would have said, right, I'll take these out here. Um, but he set them all by gum. <laughs> <laughs> that, that shows a great respect for you as his librettist. Fear, it was fear. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you, a last question, because we're going to talk again in a moment, but did you start at the beginning and finish at the end? Did you write it sequentially, or did you write it in, in a different kind of way? Well, when it became clear that the action structure wasn't going to work, I decided to start again, and to start again by writing choruses and making them, here you're hearing, sort of the child and grandchild of civil engineers talking, the supporting pillars, the supporting columns on which the opera would, would rest. So the summer of 1980, spring and summer of 1989, I wrote all the choruses for the opera. And then in the autumn of 1989, I started writing the solo voices. Good. Well, we'll talk again about the opera in, in, yeah. uh, after his performance in a moment. We're going to have some music now. Um, Duncan Rock, who covers the role of the hijacker Mahmoud, uh, and Ian Ryan from English National Opera Music Staff are going to perform a little of the music. So would you please welcome Duncan Rock and Ian Ryan at the piano. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan, before you begin, just tell us what you're going to sing for us. Absolutely. Um, good afternoon. Um, this section that we'd like to perform happens in the first act of the opera. Uh, the terrorists have taken control of the, of the ship, and we find Mahmoud and the captain 
alone together, uh, watching on the bridge of the ship. And uh, they've, they've been there for several, several hours. And Mahmoud has a radio with him that he can use to pick up uh, pirate radio signals. And he hears some music that's familiar to him, which is represented in the orchestra by an oboe. And you can hear that in the piano reduction also. And he uses this opportunity to allow the captain to see him, himself on a, a slightly deeper level. Transmit sound carries better when it's later over the waters, it's best of all. like news, but I love these songs whose stories are all the same. Lovers, a time of parting, for him death in a war. The song is her lament. For he must go away. He'll send money. So they can marry, or the woman dies of a disease that leaves her face untouched. She has brothers, maybe a father, cruelly she torn from a lover. The stem is broken, the head of the rose has dried and scattered. It's good that these songs are sad. 
I used to play with guns. My first toy was one like this, a real one. I was five and just able to prop it and crawl over to a wall. Prop it, fire, smell the hot metal and the exploded round. Enjoy the sound until my hand refused to bend. It seemed a long time. I'm young. It was not I driven away. But my mother, who could not remember what happened to her, she only said, there was a raid. Uncle carried her in his coat. He never thought they would be more than a day. She said God would restore threefold all they had called us. She was killed with the old men and children in camps at Sabra and Shatila. God in his mercy showed my decapitated brother to me. And in his mercy allowed me to close my brother's eyes and wipe his Duncan, Rocky and Ryan, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Duncan, as you were preparing this opera, did you discover quite a lot about Mahmoud? I mean, did you try to do some research? What did you do? I did. I, um, I was invited onto this opera quite late, actually. Um, and uh, with that, uh, James, uh, who was the assistant director, gave me quite a substantial kind of envelope full of, of research, which was... Um, I kind of was quite daunted by the prospect of getting through it all, but it was fascinating. And, um, of course, uh, I wasn't uh, around yet when this event actually happened, so uh, it, it didn't strike a, any chord of memory with me. Um, but I, I did, and I think it's important to, to, to understand the background, particularly with an event you know, that actually occurred, a factual event. What did you decide, having looked at the research? What kind of view did you form of the man you were going to sing? Well, I think um, with Mahmoud, uh, he, I was quite surprised. Um, I, I wasn't uh, familiar with the opera. I'd heard of it, but I, I'd never seen it before. And initially quite surprised to see um, one of the uh, terrorists with, with such beautiful, beautifully written music. Uh, that section and, mm. and actually the next section he sings, which is he sees these birds flying around the ship. Um, and I found it very interesting uh, that it was, um, he would almost be uh, able to, to speak so beautifully and, and allow the captain to see into his heart like that. Um, but it, it, it's, I think with Mahmoud, you get a sense, he's the only, of, the only one of the terrorists that you actually, that gets the opportunity to speak 
like that. It doesn't mean the other was, uh, wouldn't be able to, but certainly as you see Rambo um, is very much a, an aggressive, sort of barky type, and quite offensive. Um, and uh, Mulkey is sort of the lead, comes across as the leader of the group and is, and is more of um, the dictator and shouts the orders. But Mahmoud is the, the one who gets the opportunity to express himself. As you say, the, the music that Adams writes for Alice Goodman's Thread is, is astonishingly beautiful. And the next passage, I mean, is heart-stopping. Is it difficult to sing as well? Um, yeah, I mean, it's extremely well-written music. Um, but <laughs> but it, um, it, it, obviously, a lot of modern music, uh, I, I sing a lot of Mozart, personally, uh, and you can often guess where the music is going to go. Mozart was modern once. Well, he was. <laughs> um, but it's certainly, in order to sort of get the notes into your mind or into your memory, it does take a little bit longer. And I, I don't really play the piano so well. I actually play the guitar. Mm. So I, I've, I remember I've sat at, for hours at home with my little acoustic guitar bashing out the notes and trying to... Um, but once... But I, you, you'll notice this evening when you see the piece, once you kind of fall into that sound world, it actually becomes very accessible. Um, it doesn't sound sort of atonal, really. or you, You're able to follow it very well. Um, it, it, but it's, it's certainly not obvious, like some, some of the earlier uh, music. Ian, how would you characterise um, Adam's score for this piece? Um, well, first of all, it's um, instantly recognisable as John Adams, I would say. That's, um, it's one of his... It's in the certain period, it's post-Nixon uh, in China, and has similarities in the style of music to many of those pieces as opposed to some of his later works. Um, there are, I would say, minimalist influences. It's by no means a minimalist piece, but certain things of the, the rhythmic patterns, the rhythmic drive of the piece, you'll hear again and again throughout the piece. Uh, sometimes it's actually easier for me to demonstrate what do, I mean on the do. piano. Uh, um, for instance, when the... When the um, after the first two choruses, we see the first scene with the captain and, uh, and his monologue of mem remembering the events of the hijack. And, um, and the music starts with a very typical ostinato pattern that you find throughout this piece, uh, which goes... And this, this rhythm here... I get to play in the in the orchestra on a, on a synthesized keyboard, and it's like a pizzicato. And often you'll find that although the beat and the settings of the word change, in in so this is like one, two, one, two. We go one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. One. So the, it it. it when you listen to it, you should not notice it feels very con... There's lots of continuity across it and a lot of cross-rhythms. But that's one, of the, that's one of the characteristics you'll hear. As well as those, those rhythms, which, which are unforgettable ones you've heard them the first time, yeah. are there kind of musical themes that, that you can track all the way through the piece that are there to remind you of what has happened, to function as musical themes do within a through-composed opera? There are, yeah, there are certain, certain musical themes which occur <coughs> through the piece. Um, Perhaps first I should say, in relation to when you mentioned the idea of the, the passions and uh, the relationship to Bach, uh, certainly I think John had, again, I wouldn't say it's like an oratory, but there's influences of that. On top of this music, after he just sings, it was just after 1.15, there is an oboe solo, which has, um, like an obligato, which you would find in many oratorios. You know, so, so... Uh, Which occurs at the same time, same time as the voice, and occurs throughout music. And the captain, at the start of the piece, has an oboe. Um, the the Swiss grandmother has a flute solo. Uh, they, they, they occur throughout the piece. Um, Mahmoud, in his aria, has this reference to the, to Arabic music with the bassoon. 
that occurs through. But in terms of the themes, yes, certainly there, there are. Um, I think what I find personally very interesting is the way that Mahmoud's music, which we just heard some of, some of that music, occurs almost influencing the captain's music later on in the piece, when the captain, at the very end of the piece, wants to break the, has to break the news to Marilyn Klinghoffer. Um, we hear some of the, 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 some, it's almost like we're in the mood's world of the music. He says, um, I pray that time will heal, will heal you and that, and the Lord assuage your sorrow, uh, uh, so that this mirage will soften into memory and phantom pain into strange joy. And therefore, after that follows a bassoon solo. And that sounds to me immediately like Mahmoud's music, which I think is a really interesting um, idea. It's, you know, it's very subtle, but it somehow registers within us that it's music that we've heard before. In bassoon, oboe, flute, yep. but also keyboards. Keyboard. Say a little bit about the instrumentation. I think John Adams was one of the pioneers of this in terms of opera, of the idea that the performance you will hear tonight is sound designed. Uh, the, the, all the singers have microphones, and, uh, and the orchestration was designed with this in mind. There are, in this performance, John Adams has actually... Um, revised some of the orchestration for this production as the English National Opera. And so in joining the orchestra, which is quite a standard orchestra, we have two electronic keyboards and one what we call a MIDI mallet cat, which is like, it looks like a big electronic xylophone. Uh, and we, we add certain sounds and often help to influence the wider sound of the, of the orchestra. So as the as the first keyboard player, I get to play uh, lots of different sounds from pizzicato sounds to drum sounds to uh, string sounds and all different things. Uh, and it's very um, carefully sound designed by uh, a team of uh, David Shepard and Mark Gray, uh, who gently balance the voices on stage and the orchestra and the electronic instruments within it. Uh, it's, very, it's, it's very subtle how it's done. It's, it's really interesting. Ian, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, a chance, if you would like to ask uh, Duncan and Ian questions, there'll be a chance to talk to Alice at the end of our time together. But if there's anybody who'd like to ask a question of either of the two of them, uh, there's the roving microphone. Put your hand up and catch my eye, and I will direct the microphone to you. Anyone would like to ask about the music or indeed the vocal singing, the line? Yes, the microphone is on its way. Thank you. Um, on the recording, um, I thought I could hear um, a harpsichord or something similar to it. Um, can you say something about that, or am I mistaken? No, you're absolutely right. So that's one of the that's one of the sounds I get to play at one point. Um, so, so it's actually it's um, there's a point in the second. I, I, I think I know where you where you're thinking. It's in the second act, uh, and it's it has this sort of. Um, um, harpsichord solo that occurs over the strings and that is a, an electronically sampled harpsichord which occurs in the keyboard parts. So, yeah. Sharp ears. Mm. Sharp ears, yes. <laughs> Another question, anybody? Anybody else? Another question, anybody? Yes, over here at the front. The mic is on its way to you. You, you spoke about Mahmoud's music, as it were. I mean, is, is that something which goes throughout the opera, that different characters have different kind of sound forms or styles which um, which the which John Adams plays with certainly so uh, certainly um, sorry so for instance you this is the captain's music at the top and so later on when he t uh, in the first act when he talks about uh, I have often reflected that this is no ship uh, he talks a little about the ideas of life on a ship and whether a ship is a hotel, is it? But it's still a ship, and there's there's lots. Of there, I think there are similarities. You hear um, the music starts there, as so it's these open, what we call musically open fifths in the bass. I have often 
reflected and actually at one point um, the music goes back you know you're you often hear that kind of music and um, there's one of the one of the hijackers Molki has very angular music and much of his music is when he first when he first you, you hear him first sing he has this give these orders it's very angular and actually in the second act he has the same thing his music tends to represent his it's, it's for all for a dramatic purpose. It's to represent his... Uh... Well, in, in, in Molke's case, actually, in the captain's memoirs, he actually mentions that even when uh, the terrorists were at such a high level of anxiety yes. and tension that even when they were giving calming orders or something that you would often give in a sort of low voice, they were screaming them because the anxiety level was so high. And that's certainly represented in Molke's music. Yes. You'll hear it's, it's the only tenor role, actually, in the opera. And he, it's really extreme tessitura, and I think that he's trying to get across that idea that they the were anxiety. always at such a high level of anxiety and tension. Duncan Rock, Ian Ryan, thank you both very much thank indeed. You. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> it was George Orwell who wrote that, I quote, claim that art should, not be, should be non-political is in itself a political statement. The Death of Klinghoffer is a political opera just as Nixon in China. The first collaboration, as we've heard, between John Adams and Alice Goodman was a political work. Maybe opera is uniquely placed to handle the great political issues of each age. Certainly, 19th century opera engaged directly with the politics of the time. I don't have to remind you, I'm sure, that Verdi becomes a champion for Italian reunification, um, that Viva Verdi is really Viva Vittorio Emanuel Re d'Italia. And why does Wagner settle down to begin to work on the most impossible and improbable of all musical projects in the 19th century, the Ring of the Nibelung, if it isn't to try to explore the idea of revolution and revolutionary change within his society. Whereas Nixon in China was greeted, it seems to me at least, but Alice will probably differ with me, with nothing but praise, in America at least, Klinghoffer met with protest. It was said to be pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel. Worse, it was accused of being anti-Semitic. Marilyn Klinghoffer and her daughters said a personal history, their history, had been hijacked for public political purposes, despite the fact that the two of them had already collaborated on two other projects about the death of Leon Klinghoffer. And indeed, it's taken over 20 years to reach an English stage after its premiere in Brussels in 1991. Alice, what was your first reaction on seeing the production in Brussels? Well, I had, I had mixed, mixed views about the production in Brussels because I think the design team, George Tsipin um, and uh, Antonia Ramakova, who did the set and the costumes, and... Um, and Peter, working as director, were working very hard to make it absolutely abstract. Uh, I don't know if any of you were there, but everyone was wearing um, basically um, dull-colored utility garments, I think I would describe them as. <laughs> uh, that's, that's thoroughly unfair to Dunya, who's a great designer, but this wasn't... This wasn't the way I would have designed it. And the effect was, um, the effect was too abstract and too, too distancing, it seemed to me. We did have a whole lot of Mark Morris dances in it, which were wonderfully beautiful, but the effect they had was to um, almost to emphasize the kind of 1940s modernism of the rest of the design and direction conception. And that was, um, that was a bit I noticed because you always notice the things that you don't agree with. Um, 
the singing was beautiful. And at that point, John and Peter and I were quarreling so much amongst ourselves that, um, that the kind of backstage atmosphere was, was um, you know, fish soup. <laughs> did, did you imagine that it would cause the controversy it did when it went to America? No and yes. Um, I was surprised that the line taken would be that it was anti-Semitic. Um, I could see that it would cause controversy and I could see it in a way that I suppose John and Peter couldn't because the particular issues with respect to the Jewish community in the States were ones that I'd grown up with and had known my whole life, but were so much of an interior conversation within American Jewry that John and Peter would have had no idea that these things even existed within the libretto. And they were, and the reason why I put them in, um, and I'll, I'll put it very simply, the issue of the, oh, issue is such a horrible word, the depiction of the Klinghoffers as, as ordinary people, not as, um, not as heroic in the conventional sense. Anyone who's, who here, all of you, I think, when you have heard Mrs. Klinghoffer's final aria, will acknowledge that the Klinghoffers are, oh, I won't say the heroes, I would say the goodies. They're the, they are the, the they, are, they are the mention in this piece, and they are completely ordinary. The beautiful romantic stuff is sung by the young people, the terrorists, because there's a theme of youth and age, of health and sickness, of desire for death and desire to live, that's also running constantly inside um, the opera. Um, I knew when, when I had Leon Klinghoffer say as his last words, and he says them, of course, because he's cheering up his wife. <coughs> he's, he's calming her, he's cheering her, he's comforting her. And so he says, as he sits in his wheelchair three feet below everyone else because they're up on a, a closed-over swimming pool and his chair wouldn't get there. Um, he says to her, you know, look at that gull. Think it'll land in the pool. Well, I'll pick up a tan anyway. All these little inconsequentialities that you say to somebody you love when you're trying to make them smile. And then his final words, and these are the last words he says in the opera, are, I should have worn a hat. Now on all kinds of levels, I knew that this was not going to be received well. Do you, do you think it was precisely the ordinariness then that, that, that upset people. What they wanted was a kind of vindication of the Klinghoffers as heroic figures in the face of this terrible thing that fell, befell them. Well, that was what they got, of course, in the two TV docudramas, which um, Ilsa and Lisa Klinghoffer were um, on contract as advisors to, and which came out on, on television in the States in the two years while we were writing the death of Klinghoffer. Um, they got heroism of the conventional kind um, in spades, but that that wasn't that wasn't and that isn't 
what I'm interested in. I think that our, our tendency to assume that the person who gets to sing the big romantic aria must be the hero. Um, I, well, Orwell's a hero of mine, and I think he would have wanted to puncture that one too. And that the little man, and I hope you'll forgive me for referring to Klinghoffer as the little man. I'm using it in a purely artistic sense. Um, who says, I should have worn a hat as he's wheeled off to be shot. That that is something, can be something worth valuing. Let's turn it over to see if the audience would like to join us in the conversation. But before we can, um, do you regret, or maybe this was a choice? I've never, I've never asked you this, but the fact that this was the last libretto you've written. Oh, of course I regret it. I've said to you already, this is not a perfect libretto. It's not a perfect opera. Um, it's not Don Giovanni, or if you want a real perfect opera, The Marriage of Figaro. It's not even Dido, uh, which has, by the way, the very best libretto ever written in English. Um, so I suppose what I wanted, what I hoped, was we would go on and write a, an opera that was structurally as good as Nixon and had all the different levels of moral, political, musical complexity that Klinghoffer has. That we would go on and write more beautiful, funny, moving stuff together. And that wasn't to be. Um, do I regret it? Yeah, sure I regret it. Wouldn't you? Let's ask people, if you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up and the microphone will find you. Yes. Hi, um, thank you for being here. I just wanted to say um, I really value you very highly as a, as a poet. And I hope, um, I, uh, apparently you're not doing the brothers anymore, but are you still writing? I mean, I really hope so, because you're a profound um, writer in my view. That, that's really kind of you. Um, let's see. I've written a short collection of uh, reflections on the Daily Office Lectionary for... <laughs> <laughs> and I have to preach three times a week. <laughs> Another question. Just do you like to pass the microphone over? Just over there. Thank you. When you were collaborating with Adams at the stage of writing and you sent him a text, did you expect him to set exactly the text you sent or was, could he play around with it? And conversely, did he send you any instructions or requests like having rhymes or certain speech patterns before you started writing? We decided about uh, verse forms before anything else. That was part of the deciding on the structure. And one of the things you'll notice if you get a printed libretto, I don't know if Ian now has printed them and is going to be flogging them to you. Uh, buy one if so. Um, there's a lot of what the verse form known as skeletonics in here. We used that sparingly in Nixon and John loved setting them, the very short rhymed lines that John Skelton wrote in. Um, the way it would work is um, I would send him a text, usually after several pleas from him, like, send me some text. <laughs> I'm getting worried. I've got to get this done. Send me some text. So the text would be sent. This is all pre-computers. Um, it's in that stage. Nixon, for Nixon, everything was sent by post. Klinghoffer, it was faxed, which since I didn't have a fax machine, <laughs> meant walking down to the copy shop half a mile away from my home and filling in a form and having it faxed to John in Berkeley. Um, the, 
there were things, there, as with Nixon, there would be places where he would say, can we cut X? You know, can we cut, can you cut 10 lines out of this? Because one of the deals that John and I had was if he wanted cuts, I would gladly make them, but I needed to make them because I could see where they could go and the thing fit back neatly together. Whereas if he was cutting it himself, it's rather as if you were going to be doing minor surgery <laughs> on yourself. Uh, we'll have one more question, I think. Yes, in the front row. Um, this is rather a, a small observation, but you called the uh, captain a windbag, and yet he... Well, I, I, saw the, I saw the opera last week at the Jess rehearsal, and yet he was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. He said, uh, take me as, as, as the next victim. So I, I wish you hadn't said anything negative about it. But, but that's the whole point, and it's wonderful Alice, that you brought it up. can I just repeat the question? I'm not yes. sure everybody heard it at the back. The question was that, that, that Alice had described the captain as being a windbag, but the questioner reminded us that, um, that within the opera, he's prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice and exchanged his life, or wishes he might have been able to. Well, I, um, that, oh, don't think that that wasn't chewed over in rehearsal. Alice, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I interrupted but, you. But that's a wonderful point to, to, because it precisely makes the point I want to make, which is windbags do heroic things. <laughs> and, you know, being, being an unreliable narrator does not mean that you are not prepared to be a true captain and do that thing that captains of ships are supposed to do. Um, and that is the case. Nobody in this opera is entirely good. And even the worst people are entirely human. I think you've wonderfully elegantly led us back to Lord Jim, I suspect. Mm. Um, which is a thought that I should have had but didn't. Yes. And, and that's been one of the things. Ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you all of you, as always, for being wonderfully attentive, thoughtful, good questions. Our thanks to Duncan Rock for singing, Ian Ryan for playing the piano, but above all to Alice Goodman for talking so honestly about this piece. Alice, thank you. <laughs>